0: For the Better Yet Podcast, I'm Tim Crisp, your host, Better Yet. It's a long-form interview podcast featuring musicians talking about influence, talking about writing, and talking about being around. Right. Remember this record? God, the first two. They were so good. So good. Happy spring. Happy Airy season. We're back in fire. I am coming in with momentum, I would think. The past month or so has felt, I I don't know, a little shiftless. I think I have a tendency to get bored and to want to do things when I'm bored. And then I take up a lot at once and I lose energy. I think that's a balancing act we all go through to some extent. But I feel centered as of right now. And I'm hoping to continue in harnessing that energy and to take advantage of when things are, you know, when things are on opposite ends of the scale, relaxing when you can, and, and, and doing a lot when you feel like doing a lot, but knowing what's best for you at all times. All that being said, I have an announcement, something I am very excited to bring you, a new show, my best friend and web developer Scott Southern and I have started a show about the greatest postmodern art form in existence, professional wrestling. The show is called Postmarkdom. Its subtitle would be something along the lines of Meta Perspectives on Professional Wrestling. This is something that I've been thinking about for some time, wanting to channel the feelings I have for wrestling into something Scott and I watch through a similar lens, and you know we like each other, so I think it's got it's got some heavy potential. The first episode is in the Better Yet feed, if you would like to listen. If you like it enough, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts. If it's not your thing, that's okay too. Uh, You'll probably be happy to hear that I've got something. I've got a different place for me to go and talk about it at greater lengths. So happy mediums is our theme for this week. But yeah, balancing. I've been writing some things and I've been... I've been putting a lot of effort into these shows and and it's exciting. It's feeling like, you know, things are kind of starting to... I feel like this time last year it was kind of where I was reaching a point where I, I was putting everything into this show and I was starting to experience a feeling like, okay, now I've put everything into it and I really need to find other places to put some of the energy because putting too much into one thing it's not good for anybody and you know looking back now as we're changing into a season and thinking about where I was then I feel like I have a good amount of of outlets to be putting the energy into and still feeling you know very very solid and uh very very grounded within this podcast and God, here we are. We're we're in the '90s, and we got a really good episode for you this week. My guest this week is Glenn Curran. Glenn runs Super Records, a Chicago-based label. He started with our friend Namdi. In 2016, he's also the driving force behind the project Man Without a Head, whose self-titled LP was Super's first release. That record is a huge, bombastic orchestral performance featuring Glenn and some of our old friends like Namdi and Seth Engel. It's also a real eye-popping set that he lays down, full of absurdism and some very fun imagery along with some serious, serious existential grapplings. A really phenomenal work. That I was very excited to talk to him about and also excited, too, to have the homie over to talk about Super, a label that's put out records by a lot of alumni on top of Nomdi and Seth. We've got releases from Coaster, Mother Evergreen, Wrong Numbers, Great Deceivers, and Not For You, integrated into the fabric of this show is Glenn Curran so so pumped to get perspective from the guy who I you know I never actually met, but he's been a part of some of my favorite records for the last couple of years, and you know he only works with people that I seem to like and seem to enjoy so much, so it's got to be good, right? It is. Now let's get to it. We'll start with a song. This is Better Half, followed by my interview with Glenn Curran. say your goal is to is to get them you know get to get people to to see how awesome they are and i don't know i think that like there's there's a lot of like comfort in being like a well-kept secret but at what expense it's tough yeah it's tough but how did you get how did you get involved with it initially
1: super began as an idea in the studio um, when I was collaborating on a project with Namdi called man without a head that's sort of like a it's like my solo project but I worked with 10 or 11 different artists on it and yeah. he played drums did some singing on it Seth angle engineered it um, and we were splitting studio time at the same time with with uh, um, That super put out, which I'm laughing to myself because I played bass in the band. Whiskey Wise. Uh (laughs) I uh played in the band and was having trouble remembering the name. (laughs) Um, So Whiskey Wise and Man Without a Head was uh, sharing studio time at Min Bell, now Jam Deck Studios, at Uh like Chicago and Sacramento.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've recorded in that room before. Love that room. It's a good room. We were splitting
1: time there. Um, Because there was a lot of interplay between the two projects. Uh, Pat Mitchell and Brendan Smythe were also in Whiskey Wise, did a lot of stuff on Man Without a Head, including vocals, playing guitar, bass, stuff like that. Uh Um, And so there was this sort of core group of us hanging out for, you know several days together in the studio just right. hanging yeah, out there's
0: not, no, there's not a lot of space in that in right that building
1: yeah that little front room sort of hanging out you know yeah. getting pizza and, and messing around and, and uh-huh. recording and it just sort of came up organically as you know wouldn't it be really cool if we had a platform for us and all of our friends because we think our friends are making some of the coolest stuff in in chicago and that was where the idea sort of came up initially and then we yeah. it was just an ongoing conversation uh-huh. after that
0: so yeah i i guess i i'm coming out of a of a season i go through like cycles of doing this too where i'm just like oh wouldn't it be great if if i did this and like you know and then some of them stick this one's stuck but um like you know are you are you the type of person who like does that and like then just jumps into it or do you move slowly on something like that, like is this a is this a is this your first like large venture into like oh wouldn't that be a great idea yeah I should do it
1: um no I would say I I if I get an idea that I really want to pursue I pursue it pretty aggressively I would yeah. say um I, I'm definitely more selective about which ones I'm going to pursue I mean I, I you know in some sense too I think a lot of people I hang out with and stuff too are also sort of idea people, like you're always just coming up with band names. Wouldn't it wouldn't be right, great yeah. if we, oh, that could be a documentary or, uh-huh. you know, this would be a really funny <laughs> thing. But, you know, you sort of know which which ones are um, worth pursuing or, or not or, you know, sort of more realistic. Super was, uh, yeah, right from the moment uh, that we sort of started talking about it, I feel like a uh, switch flipped and we, you know, put put ourselves into it pretty, pretty aggressively, pretty quickly i'd done that certainly for other things in the past you know other bands i recklessly spent student loan money on Uh (laughs) recording an (laughs) album for a band many many years ago i certainly jumped into that with equal fervor but right not as uh wasn't as wise of a choice
0: right yeah because it's like oh what this money doesn't mean anything and then you realize like oh crap
1: yeah yeah it does yes it does (laughs) Hmm. well where'd you where'd you grow up I'm from the south side of the city, a neighborhood called Mount Greenwood.
0: Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I know. In Mount Greenwood, that's like, uh, like if you take California, like straight down to what? Like, like 103rd. 103rd, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah Mount Greenwood. Um, yeah, my my friend Pat has like a, a, a family member who lives, like I was just in a house in Mount Greenwood recently in like the wintertime. It was house sitting and I was like... I was like, it, 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 these, these, like, old, old houses that are, like, way up on hills. Like, old Chicago, right? Like, that, old Chicago money. That might have been yeah.
1: the the Beverly side. Oh, So, okay. my was really close to Beverly. Uh-huh. And, uh... Beverly has Beverly is where there's it's hilly and there's all these all these really really old large houses. Okay, yeah, but yeah, they're yeah. they're right next to each other. Uh huh. There's not really hills in Mount Greenwood, but it's yeah. the same general area. Uh
0: huh. Yeah, like super far south, like almost out of the city. You're almost into like Oakland territory. Yeah, right?
1: totally. Yeah, it's like the southwest corner of the city, right near Oakland or uh-huh. that sort of stuff. Uh huh.
0: What do your folks do? My
1: dad was a – they're both retired. My dad was a union construction worker his whole life, like HVAC, sheet metal. Yeah. My mom was a homemaker until the kids sort of went to high school, and then she got back into working regularly and did a couple different things. She, like, went back to school and got a license to become, like, a – it was like a pharmacy tech she did a okay. little bit of sales yeah. and then she ultimately got in the union too in the IBEW and she was an electrician um for I'd say a decade plus or something so they're both like union construction workers
0: yeah that's an interesting transition from like farm tech to engineering right yeah she's
1: hustling she's the yeah. ultimate hustler man
0: <laughs> is she like is she is she smart in a lot of different ways yeah, yeah. for
1: sure she's very ad- uh adaptable she's good with people too yeah um so yeah, I I would say she sort of yeah juggled a few like different career changes, and then I think the uh, IBEW opened itself up as you know a, a better opportunity. I mean it's you know it's good, strong Chicago Union with you know uh, pensions and, and insurance and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah so she, for sure. But yeah, they're both like un- union construction workers basically. That's m- most of my family too. Like oh yeah, uncles. Oh this, and, is, yeah, this is old Chicago. Yeah, right it's down just here. total like uh-huh. South Side. Blue collar union, yeah, stuff. You
0: missed the parade this year. Oh man, look at that! That's uh, that's a rare occurrence. <laughs> the she dog, likes you. The dog jumped on my lap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. I I agree, but come on, let's let's come over here. Come here. I did miss the parade this year. Although, yeah. are they still doing it? Because then they they took it away for a little bit. Just <laughs> I, cause, like that's it's a weird thing. It's terrible. <laughs> we were driving through Wicker Park last night, and it was just like, man, this sucks. This is my least favorite day of the year. I only went to one
1: parade, and it was only it was a few years ago, and I went to meet up with a, with a few friends at a house or something down there. So yeah, although am yeah, I'm from that area. I was never really a like let's get to the South Side Parade right. kind of a thing. Right. Kind of you have a, a lot of
0: siblings. You said when they all went to high school.
1: I, I have an older uh, and a younger sister. So yeah. There's, there's three of us. Yeah.
0: What are they? What are they doing? My
1: older sister has uh, three children, and she is also a homemaker raising her kids. Uh, you know, because the, the eldest is in uh, seventh or eighth grade. She'd kill me if I didn't know exactly. Um uh-huh. and, But he's on his way to high school, and the youngest I think is like second or third grade so they all right they cool yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very close with uh with them big uncle glenn yeah for sure <laughs> I, I don't see them nearly as often enough but they they come they roll through every once in a while and stay with my fiance and i and we like you know take them out and yeah the, um the middle the middle kid lewis he's really into music he's playing drums it's, uh-huh. which
0: is really cool so yeah so he th- he thinks you're like the coolest dude ever you got a, you got a record label <laughs> and you got all these bands and yeah ma- well, maybe maybe I, he, he totally does i guarantee <laughs> it like uncles uncles and and like cool aunts i think like when you're when you're growing up they don't really ever become like uncool until they like until you embarrass him in front of his friends i think that's Is that like, the okay moment. i that's, think that's the cut off, off. <laughs> but so where'd you go to high school then you go to high school down there
1: no i went to uh, St. ignatius college prep downtown um, oh okay over on like roosevelt and was that like halstead near uh-huh. like uh uic yeah
0: yeah yeah yeah. so that's that's a pretty tight environment right you have to you, you gotta be smart to get into that
1: D- yeah it was like uh i had to sit for a test like an entrance exam and stuff to get in uh-huh. very very good school i mean i probably that high school probably shaped my mind and faculties more than even like college did yeah um, how so it, it's just, um, it was a very rigorous program. I mean, my first two years of high school, I was doing four or five hours of homework every single night. Very outspoken emphasis on c- developing critical thinking and um, those sorts of aspects of the school really just um, presented it as a very like intense, rigorous academic environment that you really sort of had to participate in in order right. to survive and do well. And so... Um, I I really think it, it it really helped me become you know a better reader and writer and critical thinker at least in a smaller amount of time. Like I took a bigger leap in high school from where I started to where I ended than probably I did maybe yeah. in college or something. Else. Yeah, it was for just, sure, just really intense.
0: I always like that that aspect of like how how much more difficult high school can make things than college. Like taking chemistry in a lecture hall in college as opposed to taking it in uh, in high school, it's like infinitely more. Tough in high school. I was just bad at chemistry, <laughs> molarity <laughs> equations and stuff. Man, yeah, those were. Not, I remember that. Wait, did you ever do like a mole chart, like when you were in high school? Did I, you have to do that. I think so. Mine were the Spinal Tap drummers, and I was really, really proud of that. I had each of them was like represented by what uh, what the cause of death was. So I had like you know a gardening hoe for the one <laughs> bizarre gardening axe. I, you know, that stuff helped me a lot though too. I remember uh, like. Um, making connections
1: to things that don't matter as like mnemonic devices or that are unrelated. That's how I used to remember... Vocabulary words in Spanish is I, there. There would be some word, and one of the syllables might have evoked an image or something in my brain, and yeah. I would always like associate then that image with that word, and that's how I would remember that word. On the oh, that's
0: good. Yeah, that's good. Because vocab is like impossible for me. It's impossible for me still. Like I can't, I can't retain any. I read so many books, and I don't know what the hell. I don't know. I look up these definitions all the time, and I can't get anything to stick. But um, so, when did you start getting interested? in music um I, music was always in the house my mom listened
1: my both of my parents listened to a lot of music my dad actively collected um records and listened to a lot of stuff from his childhood and he played a little bit of guitar when he was younger he always uh-huh. had a guitar around the house um didn't really play it too much but there it was sort of there when i eventually picked it up yeah. my mom listened to a lot of music she was very like you know listening to q101 back in the day like the right, alternative right, right. rock station all through like the 90s and uh, what kind of stuff was your
0: dad listening to? Like, what was he collecting? He he would uh
1: he'd buy a lot of CDs at the time. He had like a big CD collection, and he had a very eclectic music taste. He really loved sort of his foundation was like old blues, like twenties, thirties, forties, fifties blues. Everything from old you know Delta stuff and and like old unintelligible recordings of Robert Johnson to right. you know stuff from. Uh, much later, like uh, uh, Albert Lead Collins, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Even, uh-huh. you know, Albert Collins, I think he... I think there's a scene of him in uh, adventures in babysitting, like shredding the guitar and stuff. My dad no, said, That's, that's Elbert really? Collins. Oh, yeah. Man. I believe it was Albert Collins. I haven't um, seen
0: that movie in so long and I probably haven't seen it like since I moved from the East Coast. So I didn't I guess I didn't even remember is that a is that a Chicago movie? Is that another one of the eighty Chicago movies? Yeah, totally. Oh, okay.
1: Totally. I forget which building is in it, but there's a building featured very prominently where people are like sliding down the window. It's got uh-huh. this angular yeah, window yeah, on yeah. top. Yeah, I remember. But that was sort of his foundation and then but he was also really into Certain elements of like classic rock stuff. He really liked Zeppelin um, and Hendrix, huge Hendrix fan. But then he also really loved Zappa and the Dead Kennedys and um, a lot of the sort of punk stuff there at the end. Yeah. So he was sort of mixing
0: a lot of different things together just kind of down with whatever he was finding. now he like my roommate came in when i was listening to the man without a head record the other day and he's like man it's just straight zappa and is that is that accurate for sure there's yeah i would definitely say there's a lot of
1: zappa influence
0: because i know no no judgments it never it never made sense to me and so like i i you know knew you were coming over here and i wanted to be open to like you know what is it what is it about frank zappa that i'm possibly missing because i just hear it and it just is like why this this whole song's about a turd like i don't get it
1: yeah i don't know there i there there've been essays i think people have written about like how to get into zappa or like if you can even get into zappa you Uh -uh. know i'm not sure if it's like a musician's thing because he's such a strong composer and arranger um but there you know there there are like eras of his music and i there are certain eras that I'm really into and there are other eras that I just don't even touch and mess with. A lot of the, like, really... He always had humor in music, which I think is great, but a lot of the really goofy, ridiculous stuff sort of a little bit later on, and I don't necessarily... It kind of, uh, like, falls on that a little bit. Yeah, I don't necessarily mess around with a lot of that, but the the early stuff, I really... I think it was, like, the late 60s, early 70s. He made a few records. It was, like, uh, The Grand Wazoo and uh, a couple of other ones that are escaping me, but he basically had, like, a nine- or ten-piece band. It was, like, horns. It was sort uh-huh. of, like... Uh, Jazz, like rock jazz fusion stuff with horns, and I'm really, really into those records. Yeah, that always yeah. Stuck yeah. With me. So,
0: so the is it like, is it like free jazz, or is it like you know getting into like Bitches Brew territory? Miles.
1: Yeah, it, it's not fully free jazz. It's more like what what Miles I think was doing in terms of jazz fusion, really mixing rock and roll and jazz. Yeah. I think that was very prevalent in the era, and Zappa was a musician who. Did always, I think, mess with new ideas. Like, he made, you know, a record uh, in the 80s, I think, or Jazz from Hell with, like, the uh-huh. synclavier, like, very early on when oh, electronic okay, instruments cool. started coming around. Yeah. He was messing with it. So I think he, um, yeah, picked up. It's a little bit more of the, of the Miles thing, you know, the, the rock, jazz, fusion thing together. Maybe yeah. not as free and certainly more composed, but definitely in that.
0: I love, like, Jack Johnson. Like, uh, the side A of Jack Johnson just, like, blows me away every time i listen to it jazz i'm like i'm letting it come a little bit more and like the sort of the things that i'm like you know a little dismissive of like you know Prague and like i know that's i know that i'll like zappa one day yeah i don't maybe
1: not i don't know (laughs) he he might just be uh sort of a i don't know Uh, Maybe a musician's musician, or I feel like a lot of people like Frank Zappa too, because they feel like they're supposed to like Frank Zappa.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I think that's why that's why we like anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So you went to college. You went to Columbia,
1: right? Yeah. And when would you go for? I studied uh, audio arts and acoustics with a concentration in sound system contracting. So I was like in their the audio production field and was sort of concentrating on um, like live music
0: uh-huh sound stuff so going from a place that's uh you know a college prep environment i would i would think that like going and pursuing something like audio engineer is maybe a little bit of a of a left turn from where you were maybe supposed to be going for sure i was told you know my parents i
1: want to go to art school and you mm-hmm. know the, originally the idea was to go and study music but i i didn't even really know how to read or write music and I had yeah. taken guitar lessons and stuff like that but I had never I was not someone who should have been entering into a music uh like study program and I right. realized that very quickly so uh-huh. you know it sort of uh quickly switched but yeah I mean d- definitely I would say the trajectory from prep schools maybe a little different than going to an art school but I wasn't you know I was I was also the kid in prep school too, who was like getting tuition assistance, and you know what uh. I mean. I felt like I was already still a little bit sort of uh, different, Maybe than not a lot like of the part kids. of that world
0: exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. I mean, not in a bad way. I actually had a very inviting time there. I made a lot of really great friends. But I, yeah, you know, I, you know, I don't know that I, I didn't. I certainly didn't come from the family that was like you're going to be a politician or a doctor, right? Or something yeah, like for that. For sure. So my parents were cool with, um, with the choice for art school.
0: So what was, um I guess your like, what? what's kind of the catalyst then for, you know, you got these records that you're growing up with, and were you going to shows around the city when you were in high school? Were you, like, exploring the music scene here?
1: Yeah, I. um uh, it's like the, the South Side sort of pop punk scene it uh-huh. was, it was sort of my baptism I, into music. I started playing guitar at the end of high school, took lessons, um... From a couple of really great teachers that had a big influence on me, and then I started playing in this pop punk band called True Story, that uh-huh. I was in for seven or eight years. Actually, one of the other guys who uh, runs Super Steve Dowd, he does all our web programming and digital stuff. He was uh-huh. in that band with me for like seven or eight years, and but we always sort of stayed on the south side in in the pop punk sort of a scene. But that's how where I really were you playing down there?
0: Like um,
1: Orland Park and Tinley Park, oh, okay. so you know, like yeah, uh, yeah. Mojos and you know, uh-huh. that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> the Oaklawn Ice Arena, yeah, sure, places like that.
0: So, so were you and you were doing that through college then?
1: Yeah, yeah. True story was mostly, yeah, was was through college. Uh huh.
0: So was it kind of like you know you go through so many different like you know life like changes during a like time like that was it just kind of was it always just something that you could just go back to and like play a show every once in a while or were you thinking like at some point like hey let's like try and like do something with this
1: yeah we took ourselves re- <laughs> way too seriously <laughs> for sure um no we were always extremely committed to each other there was just this uh uh-huh. un- unabashed loyalty to this project and um, I think what we did was cool for its time, but we we outgrew probably the music and then didn't get savvy enough to be like, you know, to sort of move away from it when the, when the time was, was right. Right, I feel yeah, like the, yeah. the project came from a place where we were much younger, you know, uh-huh. and then we were sort of in the band for seven or eight years, and it's like seven or eight years later and we're still doing this thing that has sort of young roots. You know, it's like being right. in a relationship you start when you're in like grade school or something it's hard to sort of mature within that relationship right i feel like that's kind of what happened to us musically
0: yeah and i think it's hard too to like you know even if even if y'all wanted to like change the direction of that band it would probably just be really difficult to even like consider like no like this is this is the type of band we are the type of band that we've always been yeah but so was it a I guess was it a clean departure? Did everybody like decide like, all right, maybe this is maybe this is time for us to, you no. know, call it off? It was
1: it was a little bit. I mean, it wasn't ugly, but it was it was tough. I I sort of uh, facilitated that whole situation. I kind of just pulled the trigger on it, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of ended, but it you know it was it was it was emotional for sure. I changed some relationships with you know with people in the project. I'm still certainly friends with all, with all those people and they hold a very yeah, dear yeah. spot in my heart. But it was a little bit like it was just pulling the band-aid off and it was going to be tough, but there was in my mind no real transitioning into anything. So right, it was just Yeah. time to it's just
0: yeah, for sure. So were you were you putting your like Musical interests aside from school? Were they going into new bands? See,
1: yeah, part of the reason I wanted to end it in the first place was definitely, I think, sort of creative differences. I was becoming a lot more interested in um, maybe more sort of experimental stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but around that time, too, when it ended, I also... Made the jump to go to law school as well, so I didn't. Um, I did play in a couple other bands uh, ac- after that, actually. So it must have ended sort of maybe like junior year of college or something. I played in a couple other projects, um, yeah, that were that that were more more fulfilling at the time to play in because I was doing m- things musically that I was more interested in. So yeah. for sure, I immediately started playing bass in a band uh, called Like Dolls, and then I ended up playing guitar in a band called uh, The Able Body. Uh-huh. That sort of took me into law school.
0: Where's the, where's the New Diet come into play? Is that after law school? It's,
1: yes. Yeah, it is. Oh, okay. So, was in law school, was playing in a band called The Able Body, but I, I wasn't like primary songwriter or anything like that, so I was able to, and we didn't practice very often. We were sort yeah. of recording for a while. We didn't We didn't really play all that much, so it was sort of easy to juggle that. I was like kind of in a band, you know, uh-huh. in, yeah, in, yeah. in law school. I know that life studying um really hard and the able body had sort of ended too like midway through school so there was a period of time for the first time in my life where I just wasn't in any band wasn't Uh pursuing any project that coincided with me like uh getting my law license and then starting to practice and the first right couple years of practicing are pretty intense you know you're sort of like with any job you're learning how to actually do it out there in the field doing it right and so I wasn't um i I don't know if I could have done music at that at that time. So I, I was very overwhelmed and figuring all that sort of stuff out. And then after I got the hang of it, um, after a couple of years, the opportunity with the New Diet just sort of presented itself. Um, wow. My buddy uh, George, who played drums in the band at the time, said, hey, you know, one of our guitar players left. Why don't you come and play? And I had known those guys for a really, really long time at one of the, like, like True Story played with them at Mojo's, you know, probably... Almost a decade earlier uh-huh, than uh-huh. that, and like one of the one of the new diets, sort of first shows, and uh, just started playing with them again, and it was really it was really great, and went with it from there. And, and one thing that was so interesting too, I, I realized in retrospect, all you know, these previous bands that I was in, the South Side pop punk scene, it was so different than the North Side scene. I mean, there I, yeah. I realized almost and was almost flabbergasted by it, that I had been in the, these projects for such a long time, and there was never really any great sense of community in that scene on the South Side. Uh-huh. And I, part of the reason I really wanted to pursue music again after playing with the New Diet was because of all of the other bands and artists and this community and people were like playing shows all the time with each other and supporting each other and touring with each other and collaborating with each other and i had just never seen that Uh yeah and i was like how was i in a band for almost eight years and never actually part of any like strong community you know not even
0: like not even when you were in school at columbia were you getting community like that no
1: i I wasn't i we didn't play in like the i mean i should have i should have obviously been wise enough to per- realize that there was a whole <laughs> community of, of of you know music students at the school doing uh, things but no I never fell into that that's didn't so, that's that. so
0: funny to me that you're not like you're not sitting there in like you know SM57's 101 with some guy and you're not like hey what are you into that right. like then. That- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never really happened. There
1: was one one guy, this dude uh, s- uh, Sal, who plays in a band called Animal City. Oh, uh-huh, yeah, play. yeah, I know Animal City. He was uh, one of the few people I had talked to uh-huh. about music, and I knew he was sort of doing things, but we we didn't play shows together. And there, no, there was not yeah really anybody else. Yeah, very weird. I don't know. Uh-huh how or why that happened it's very strange but i definitely was like man you've been making music for like almost a decade in these bands and you've never really been integrated in any sort of real community yeah which is uh-huh very...
0: it's like yeah i guess it's like once you get there and you see it and you're just like oh wow yeah Huh. What a what a concept. We need, I need to start a label. Numbers, this right? is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, everyone's so good and cool. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we glossed over it, but how how do you go from uh, you know, audio engineer, major, is that is that what you got your bachelor's in? Yeah. And then you decided to go to law school?
1: Yeah, I I finished most of my core classes for um uh the, the audio part of it about um end of like sophomore year. So junior and senior year I had A whole bunch of electives I needed to do, all the liberal arts and social science stuff. And Uh I took advantage of it. You know, I was paying a lot of money to go to that school, student loan debt. I have mad student loan debt still. And um, so I was very thoughtful about choosing my classes. And um, I took a couple classes that really like changed my perspective on things. And then I started reading a lot. Um, I read a lot of books, junior and senior year of college, totally transformed the way I think about the world. And that's how I transitioned into law Mm -hmm. school. What do you got? I took a class called uh, "The Psychology of Consciousness" with uh-huh. a professor at Columbia named Rami Gabriel, um, who I'm still friends with. is an awesome musician too, and it was about it was just about the what is consciousness, yeah. you know, and um, simple things and lessons, you know, that sort of changed my perspective. I mean, you know, one of the things I took out of that class was this entity that human beings always thought of uh, as being the animating principle of life, the soul, right? Uh-huh. This was the thing that, you know... That, that animated everything gives us gives people subjectivity, right? Um, and it sort of
0: opens automatic doors when you when you walk through. Yeah, it, but it's sort of
1: metaphysical in nature. Basically, right. the thrust of that class was this thing human beings always thought of as the soul. We actually now understand as consciousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, but consciousness is the result of the physical brain. So the whole metaphysical aspect of it, everything about you know the afterlife and all of those things, is is. uh
0: just kind of uh not real, we, we, we've grown out of it, <laughs> yeah. Essentially. Not
1: not real, but you know, we the, the soul was sort of a metaphor for a subjectivity and a cause for that subjectivity that we didn't understand. Now we understand it's linked to the brain, and uh-huh. that you know, a lot of people still don't right. you know, operate well. Is, on it, that is principle. it like is
0: it kind of like science trumps all at, at that point, or like when I guess when does this develop, like the consciousness replace the idea of like a metaphysical soul? Is that like do you have a like a time frame, I'm trying to just put it into like humanity's perspective, in, of like
1: in terms of like the development of that idea. Yeah, um, I, I mean, pro- and I'm no expert on it, but I would, you know, perhaps you know around the era of the Enlightenment, you sort of like philosophical yeah, understandings sure. of science become uh-huh. very important. But I would say, sort of more like the. More recent advents of like neuroscience, probably in like the 20th century, huh? Um, is is I think really where people started studying consciousness empirically as a result of you know physical structures in the brain,
0: right? Yeah, so is it like is it as data driven as I'm kind of making it out to be in in my head, or is it like because I guess you know it's, it's it's something that like consciousness, um, you know it's like with replacing something as like you know otherworldly as as the soul do you lose a certain uh aspect of i guess like magic to all of it yeah that's you know i don't i don't but i thought a lot about that question
1: and the reason the reason that i don't is because i think despite the fact that I believe that, I still find transcendence then in what is still the absolute mystery of reality. And right, this yeah, one sure. life that I have <clears throat> to live, I mean, if I if I believe, like I do, that I'm not going to keep living after I die, uh-huh. then, you know, in some sense, with, with, a, with a soul or whatever, I believe consciousness will terminate when my brain dies, and right. there will just be... I will just cease to exist. Uh-huh. Makes this one lifetime pretty important, and in my view, arguably you know, more important than a lot of people who think they're just going to live after they die. Right,
0: right. It's kind of like the uh, the what could be perceived as like a meaningless to, you know, not having like a greater purpose or something that comes after. It's, it's actually what you take a lot of meaning in and putting it into like what you do on this plane. Yeah,
1: I, I have this one life, this one existence that we don't, I mean, certainly not even science or anything can fully understand. There's uh-huh. no necessarily inherent meaning in in it, you know. Sort of like uh, even on the Man Without a Head record, I played around a lot with Camus' idea oh, yeah. of absurdism. We're... Oh yes, so All right. that's, that's like exactly what I exactly
0: believe... where I was going. I didn't write down Camus, but I wrote down I wrote down uh, Kafka's The Hunger Artist and uh, Marquez. Totally a large man with enormous wings totally yeah that um you know that feeling of like you put you put somebody in such an absurd situation and then you see the way people react to their presence and then it's like okay well you know what sort of meaning can we derive from all of this both from the crowd and what the what the person in the situation is like going through yeah
1: yeah Camus said uh I, th- I want to say it was in uh, <clears throat> the Myth of Sisyphus, something like uh, existence is the desperate encounter between human curiosity and the silence of the universe, and that always stuck with me. And I sort of, I bastardized that in the chorus of the first track, actually on that on that record. But that's sort of what I believe, yeah, you know, yeah. about I- existence. But that to me, that absurdity does give me sort of a transcendent feeling about living because there, you know, there's nothing else to do but self actualize in the sort of intense, absurd situation we find ourselves in. And, right. you know, there's a finite amount of time to do it. So, you know, be good to people and live in love. and. Well, yeah. And I mean, you know, can. I
0: think like going, going back to the fucking, the St. Patrick's Day, like parade and like that scene, like, you know, you, you drive down Milwaukee Avenue and you just see this like insanity that's happening around you. And it's just like, okay, like, I have to derive a certain meaning that, like, like totally disowns all of this because I want nothing to do with yeah. it. And, like, it has to be mine. Uh, I always, I got to drop this here because it's it's one of my favorite things that I've ever come up with is taking the myth of Sisyphus and, and making the myth of Timmy Crisp, which is me pushing a uh, frozen pizza up a hill. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, so philosophy. It, I always found it interesting. I guess like the the um, the the track that seems to happen quite often, right? Is, is philosophy students end up going into law? Is it sort of that um, that debate aspect of it, and just like the the presentation of reality? Um. So, I took that class, read a whole lot of books on a bunch of different
1: stuff. I was reading a lot of cosmology, too. Uh And then all of that led me, you know, after sort of shattering these basic beliefs that I didn't even realize I held about existence and reality and realizing I didn't really know... Anything about anything. Wasn't being
0: 21 like the fucking best? It was awesome. Oh yeah. I was God. like,
1: that moment when I realized I'm reading a book and I'm like, I don't know anything yeah. about anything. Yeah. And everything I've ever learned is, you know, I'm just conditioned. And oh, wow. I'm, yeah, I'm 21. And for the first time, I'm thinking about thinking. And man, shit is getting weird.
0: I remember reading, I read The Stranger in, in two sittings on the quad oh, my book. freshman year of college. And the second one, I remember I just finished and it was like, I don't think I don't think I want to do any of the things that I think I want to. Yeah,
1: right. That's so. Yeah, I was I was studying sound system contracting and then uh-huh. took a few classes that really spurned me into reading a lot. Started reading a lot and had that observation as well. Like I I'm really into music and sound production and stuff, but I don't want to do this. Um, yeah. So. Uh, ideas about consciousness and cosmology and science then turned me on to politics because, you know, I became interested in the structure of society. Okay, well, if we, you know, if if these are important aspects of the world or consciousness or whatever, what, you know, do our societies follow, you know, (laughs) know, do they assimilate these truths? Right. Um, So I started reading um, a lot of politics. And I think my own views on philosophy and stuff led me very naturally to a very radically oriented politics. So I started reading a lot of um, Marxism and socialism and anarchism and libertarian socialism, lots of Chomsky. Uh Um, And that was when I decided to go to law school. Um, Not because I had any great desire to be a lawyer necessarily, but because I was interested in how the system works sort of being able to see the matrix and work within it and, you know, be able to change it for the good, which was, super naive because then you get to law school oh, and yeah. it's like you, starry, you, decisis wide eyed boy right it's like no the way the law works is it evolves very slowly it's always literally decades behind right social movements if you want to make any real change go you know organize in the streets
0: okay right yeah th- great thanks uh, here's but I, my money <laughs> yeah but I
1: also just wanted to um, I was I still didn't know what I wanted to do and so it was, yeah. it was sort of just like I'm gonna just go to grad school because I don't know what else to do and, and I'm interested now in 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 politics and law and I guess uh-huh. those things. So that seems like a natural fit. And I knew that a legal degree was sort of flexible enough where you could do a lot of different things. Just, yeah, it made, it sort of made sense. So
0: what did you, what do you end up doing with the legal degree? Like what law are you m- oriented in now? I suppose is a question.
1: I am a partner at a sort of like boutique personal injury firm in river North. So uh-huh. I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. We do litigation for, Everything from car accidents, slips and falls, wrongful death, nursing home abuse and neglect, uh-huh. uh civil rights, you know, um yeah, yeah. discrimination in the workplace, products liability, uh uh-huh. stuff like that. So we represent people and sue, you know, companies and people for insurance money basically.
0: Yeah. So I mean, you know, yeah, I think you know where I'm coming from, I'm not trying to but ambulance chaser for is sure. is a term. Yeah. Is it um yeah, I mean, I guess that's, like that's uh that's the propaganda of the insurance company by the way. That's uh uh-huh. of the insurance industry. That's their propaganda. Well, I'm interested then, I guess, because you know, someone from a from a philosophical uh mindset, you know, you you can see I think pretty like plain what one side thinks and why and then what you think and why and is that is it something that you consider do you like spend a lot of time on like I guess maybe it's more of like a case by case basis where I'm thinking like someone's comes in with a claim and you're just like, <laughs> you know, I know, I know that like the hot, the hot coffee is always the one, but like that <laughs> coffee was like really fucking hot and that's fucked up. And sure. the, you know what I mean? But is it, is, is there any aspect of it where, you know, you find yourself in? Maybe a morally compromising position ever?
1: I mean, I wouldn't call it a morally compromising position. Certainly, I wouldn't call it an ethically compromising position. I mean, as an attorney, we're officers of the court. We're bound uh-huh. to be ethical and make good faith claims. There are certain cases that come in where the, maybe the damages are not extremely severe, but that doesn't mean it's worth pursuing right. or, or not worth pursuing. I mean, but, you know, there are also cases that come in where somebody's father is dead because he got hit on a, you know, in his car and it wasn't his fault and then there's an insurance company on the other side who doesn't want to pay. So Uh in the first instance of the situation where the damages aren't very high, you have an insurance company who doesn't want to pay because they're saying, oh, this claim's not legitimate, look at these small damages. Uh And in the instance where somebody's father is dead, you have the insurance company just finding a different reason to argue to you not to pay, which is, you know, here's this issue of liability or this is what we think about this or that. And I end up having to give a similar sort of spiel to clients who come in the office a lot um, about this sort of notion of ambulance chasing, about why they Uh think it's sort of gross or dirty to pursue a legal claim, which is, in my view, an amazingly successful PR, you know, sort of strategy Uh that's worked its way through, you know, our, our American politics, for whatever reason, and resonated with people. I mean, people who don't have a lot of money or are very, very working class spend their entire lives paying for insurance, whether it's vehicle insurance, health insurance, renter's insurance, you know, all of this stuff. Uh Money and money and money and money spent everywhere for your entire life in huge amounts to an insurance company. And then they have a claim, you know, something happens and they're like, well, I'm not... I'm not going to bring a claim. I'm not some some piece of garbage, you know, who is going to file right. a lawsuit. Uh-huh. It's like, well, that's sort of the purpose is we're pooling risk so that when you do get injured and incur medical bills and miss time at work, there's, you know, there's there there's a, a process for getting that back. But insurance companies in America are some of the most influential companies in in the country, if not the, the world. Their lobbying powers are is incredible. They have so much money and it's you know health insurance. I don't think should be on a for profit basis. That yeah, it yeah, creates yeah, a perverse incentive to uh-huh. deny claims, which is what happens all the time. You know, uh-huh. and so you you do get into a legitimate accident, and then in my experience, more often than not, you have an insurance company that's just not going to pay, you know, or going to pay very little, or going to you know sort of devalue the claim. So there are cases that come in that I would say are smaller. Uh-huh. Um, but no, I don't. I mean, I don't ever feel morally compromised. I yeah, I yeah. feel like any 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 fight against the insurance companies is, 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 is fighting the good fight you uh-huh. know? I mean for real that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, how yeah. I look at it no
0: no I'm with you I appreciate you answering the question too it's uh you, you sound like you're a good lawyer <laughs> <laughs> So I mean, you know, you you, you get into this, uh, you know, you kind of find this space where you're playing with New Diet, and then is, does Long Face form is like an offshoot of New Diet? That's Anthony's like pursuit into the absurd, right? Totally, yeah. We were playing in New Diet, um, and
1: it uh, our buddy George, um, who was the drummer, there was a departure, and we started playing with a new drummer, and it was just a different sound, and the idea was it was time to rebrand. Anthony had been the new diet for the better part of a decade, so yeah. it was time to just put something new together, and the sound was a little bit uh, different, I think. So Yeah,
0: and I think it allowed him to pursue a, a pretty good, uh, you know, like idea that he has with with those songs and those subjects as being, you know, I guess a little bit similar to the absurdism that kind of marks the Man Without a Head record, right? And like the character based sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I I, I think so. I mean, um, Man Without a Head to me is very like a lot of sort of Camus and Chomsky, you know, the sort of morality of Camus and the politics of Chomsky is sort of fused together and then me toying with those ideas yeah. within the context of a love song or, you know, songs about friendships or whatever sort of a lot of normal songs are written about. And then I would say Long Face is in many ways a satire on society, but it deals with a lot of those same issues because I think the sort of the political perspective is similar. You know, they're both yeah. aware of income inequality and are both, you know, sort of, you know, they're a, a, cr- a critique on similar... Uh, nefarious aspects of society I would yeah, say. so for i think sure. there's one's just more playful way of doing it uh-huh. long face is sort of much more playful
0: so how long were you working on that man without a head record two
1: years was uh start to finish was like two years but i it went in sort of waves i wrote the compositions on guitar and then i would work with let's say, a drummer, Uh you know, on these songs, and then we, uh, and then I'd work with a bass player, and then a xylophone player, or something like that, and so I was sort of always, like, um, working with different people in groups, and then it was, like, after I had worked with everyone, and the compositions were done, then worked with vocalists, then we sort of went into the studio, and had to sort of record it in that same way, so I played, you know, went in there, and uh, Namdi and my friend Brendan Smythe laid down most of the drums, and then you know, worked with, with other people sort of in, in the studio throughout when the time. You,
0: when you dictate it that way, is it just um is it just because it's hard to get nine people together at once or did you kind of like build upon it as you were, you know Yeah it showing was... into a drummer and showing because it? it's it's all it's crazy that composition. Yeah,
1: it's it's a bit it's definitely a bit much, um, you know. It's sort of super no, it's verbose not a and bombastic. Bit much. It's great. <laughs> it sounds like reading unreadable dense philosophy to me, which was sort of I think what I was going for. But it was the latter. It, I it, think it's it a lot more fun
0: than the. It's like it's like pop philosophy. It's not it's not the dense stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the it's the it's the type that does a really really good like collective essay on the dense stuff, and then you get the dense stuff, and you're just like. Uh, I I can just I can just quote from the person who said it first totally, and then act like I'm quoting. Like it's like Immanuel Kant. I yeah. cannot read Kant. I can
1: only read people who write about Kant. Yeah, and then I yeah, still yeah. barely yeah.
0: understand what Same. they're saying. Sam. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I guess you know you're you're building a thing that's that's super massive, and I guess that you are clearly like working. From that mindset that you want, you know that you want this to be big. Yeah. How much dictating are you doing then? Because you have so many different players on there. Are you putting, you know, a saxophonist in front of a microphone and saying, play this? Or are you saying, all right, I'm going to hit record and you just go?
1: So in terms of my role in the arrangement, I I was definitely very vocal about... um, Sort of concepting things uh, Uh A a lot of times But not necessarily You know Like I wasn't writing The parts So I For the the saxophone For example There's some spaces On the record Where the saxophone's Doing kind of a free jazz thing You know Blowing its nose Or something Uh And that was something (laughs) Where Yeah We You know I had uh, Articulated to the sax player That that was sort of Going to be What that part was like And so he had come in With sort of an idea Of obviously the key Of the song And what to do And then Uh Yeah he would Stand in front of the Microphone And I would Yeah, sort of give feedback like that. Coleman! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Give me some more net. But um, the other parts of it, though, for example, the drums, Namdi did a lot of the drums. I had sort of very loose ideas of what I would, you know, wanted in terms of motif or vibe on the drums. But really, I mean, he, you know, obviously would... You know, he can. You know, can played things that I didn't think of, and, and compose a lot of that. Yeah. And on the similarly on the vocals, like the vocal melodies, because I had I wrote all the lyrics, but then uh-huh. worked with different singers on the vocal melodies, and had very loose understandings uh, of what I wanted from from the vocals, and then the you know the different singers sort of put a lot of themselves into it too.
0: So the choice to like use different singers was that. Um, yeah, what what goes into that? Why not just do it all yourself? I can't
1: sing um uh-huh. at all. So, that was you sort did of did a pretty
0: good job, I
1: thought. Yeah, it's <laughs> you know, screaming through distortion. Uh-huh. Um, so that was sort of off the table and then yeah, it was I didn't want to take up like too much of anybody's time. I realized it was sort of a lot to ask and uh-huh. I wanted to work with all these different people and yeah. so um and I like, yeah, conceptually that it's man without a head, and then it's just all these different singers. So I don't know how conscious of a choice it was. I just started sort of working with like my friend Brendan on vocals on this song, and then uh, Nambi on this song, and my friend Pat on this song. And right, it just sort of happened. You know,
0: it, I guess it's, it's one of those things that you sit and you listen to, and then you you know you read you know that it's composed by one person and then you see that like there's recording dates in 2014 and there's recording dates in 2016 and you know you were at the hour and Minball and stuff like that so the there's a vision too and i think the the lyrics also add to this too or it's just like you know what what extent is is madness working you know with <laughs> in self into this is this like are you um i guess like are you really really you know hell bent on a on a certain vision of it or is this something that you're kind of just like ah oh, let's just like fucking let's do it let's like put everybody together and like do this thing no
1: i was really hell bent on a vision i would say i'm not i'm not sure how planned out the the vision was or or like we talked about it it was something that um Came about over time, but I definitely was very obsessive about the project for yeah. almost a two-year period. So I would record something, or or write something, or demo something with someone, and then I would listen to it obsessively and and make notes and figure out why I wanted it changed and what uh-huh. I wanted it changed to, and all that sort of stuff.
0: Um, How does that play out for your sanity?
1: Yeah, it. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll see. I <laughs> tend to be obsessive about. Um, the things that I really dive dive into, you know. But it's yeah. also one of the things I need to be, I think I have to check myself every now and again. You yeah. Know, just 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 to make sure. But um yeah, when I'm when I'm really into something I, I think I sort of think about it all the time, all the time, all the What's time. What's your sign? Uh sun sign or moon sign? Sun. Leo. Leo? Yeah.
0: What's your moon? Aquarius. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Well I'm a I'm a Sagittarius. Um Virgo's my son, so I like have I think we have a similar like obsessiveness but yours it sounds like yours like it goes in and then you need to put it out like as quickly as you can and mine just like my obsessiveness just like all stays here sure all stays here (laughs) um I think that's you know that's my moon versus yours I I, I
1: go in like I go in waves, I think, especially with music. Like, I'll be working on a project very intensely and being very obsessive about it, and then I'll take time away from it. It's uh-huh. interesting. Like, when I'm pursuing an artistic thing, music, usually, I don't read a lot. Like, it's hard uh-huh. for me. I don't know why. It's hard for me to sort of, like, read and learn and reacclimate. I, I don't know. Or, or sort of be very reflective um, about ideas, you yeah. know, that aren't, like, immediately related to the art. Maybe it's just because it's hard for me to take my mind off of this project. Right, absolutely. Just going on in my brain. So I tend to, like, I'll do a project, and then I'll start reading again, and then usually the ideas I am I feel like I'm pursuing when I read start to influence whatever I'm thinking about for the next project. Definitely.
0: Or that's, that's, like, how my, my writing goes. I just, like, completely... Like lose track of it, and like this. This morning actually was the first that in maybe a week that I just decided that I, I get up early, and there's no way around me getting up early. <laughs> so I knew I was gonna have like a couple hours, and it was like, all right, let me just read for the first time in like two weeks, and just totally like centers everything. Yeah, and you go back to writing, and it's just like, oh, cool look at this idea that just communicates itself i don't even have to work anymore (laughs) but it's like it's i guess it's funny you know especially when it comes to like philosophical matters or existential matters when you are you know you're so locked in on like you know your interpretation of Camus or something you know like that and you you know you try to push it out in your way for so long that the moment you stop and then you read, like, you know, something else that's similar, or maybe something that, you know, goes back uh, a generation before Camus, and then you see it, like, you know, reinterpreted or, you know, interpreted differently, and you're like, A, doesn't fucking matter how I say it because they've been saying it for fucking ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but B, like, you know, oh, that's nice. A little bit of levity onto all of it yeah being obsessive it's it's fucked up (laughs) yeah
1: absolutely you know and then you spend all this time on in this these ideas in this worldview like you said and then you you pick up something else and those things sort of start to slowly change and evolve
0: yeah um i guess how does the um the obsessive part of your brain you know how does that work into the label because i think that you know one of the things that we were talking about in the kitchen and like when we sat down and started talking is there's a certain level of of doing this thing where it involves so much obsession and so much work and so much you know just needing to stick to the vision to get things out and done and present them properly but then there's the aspect of it where it's like you can't change the fact that like, you know, this website isn't emailing you back. Shit like that. Yeah.
1: I would say the obsessive part of it is definitely tied into um, my my productivity as it relates to the label. I would um, Because there's so much that needs to be done and there's just, you know, there's not like a bunch of employees or anything. So I'm, I end up doing uh, a, a lot of it. Um, my obsessiveness, I think, is sort of tied into actually just keeping myself organized. Like, okay, I need to follow up in this email. I need to make sure I put in this, you know, production order for cassettes. I need to make sure that I log uh, these other things into my calendar. And yeah, so I I think a lot of that uh, energy, obsessive energy, is sort of spent on just trying as best I can to be organized. And then I would say the other area of time where I end up thinking a lot is strategically just trying to explore new ideas and opportunities in a in a way that could help advance the cause of the label you know am trying right. not to be um too uh, complacent about sort of where where we are you know and just trying to trying to meet other people forge new relationships do different things with it think creatively um,
0: I think that's one of, the, like, the, the toughest balancing acts of, of doing anything is, like, you want to grow it, and you want to put energy into continuing to grow it, but growth is, you know, only dictated so much by your energy. it's It, it has to have a lot of other pieces right. moving with it, and it's tough to know... What's best for you, and you know what's best to push on, and what's best to just be like it's, it's that's those are things I can't change,
1: yeah I don't yeah, I don't um certainly no expert at this stuff, like the label is new, and um I almost like that you know i don't I don't have a lot of preconceived notions about what like I or we should be doing, so a lot of the opportunities or or cool things that have come about have really um been just us sort of following our gut when when things are are happening Um, yeah and so i i feel like i feel like that's something i don't know that we'll continue to do
0: so how does it start initially because the man without a head record is the first super
1: release right it's the first physical release and it was intended to be the first release and then we ended up actually putting out um the what's called on the website the we got you record which is the cover uh or the album of Namdi covers that all uh-huh. those, the, all the oh. homies contributed to my it. god so that yeah. was so that ended up launching at first cause, um that was technically the first release but man without a head was the first physical release
0: yeah and it and, and Namdi is it is it how does it work it's it's pretty much like at the beginning it's you and Namdi like doing the thing right for sure yeah,
1: I mean, he's in a co founder, you know, co owner uh-huh. you know, like myself in, in the label. And it's obviously very intentionally branded around him. You know, super was a Namdi
0: related word yeah. from Super Duper Secret Side Project and right. all that. Um, so. What, what um, I guess, like, you know, what Namdi's like, he's somebody that I think anybody who knows him feels really deeply connected to him. And I guess you know what what about like your relationship with Nnamdi, uh went into you know like this this uh, forging that you have with a label that you're doing together. I I mean I'm I'm not a hundred percent
1: sure. We realized I think I realized that I think we made a pretty good team when we were just working together, and I think. Um, you know he he had he had been in an endeavor with a label before, so they tried um, for a while. There was a label called Swerp that did yeah. some cool stuff. Were you involved in Swerp? No, no,
0: I w- Swerp was like happening when I moved here, so I I never really got like a full scope on what that was exactly. Yeah, that
1: was before I sort
0: of started
1: participating through the new diet and all of that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and and I know that the you know, that was something a lot of people put a lot of time and energy into. I don't know much about it. can't speak all that well towards it, but I know, I feel like there was a little bit of wariness about trying to, you know, do something like that a- again, just uh-huh. um, because of, you know, maybe it, it ended up sort of not working out, I think, or ended up, you know, uh, st- stopped putting out records for whatever reason. Um, and but when Nami and I started talking about it, um, I don't know. I, we had spent a lot of time working together on the man without a head collaboration. And I think, uh, you know he maybe trusted in me as someone who might be able to like, you know do a good job and and yeah. think very sort of logistically and and uh uh practically about things you know and um and I you know I was just a huge fan of his of his music and yeah wanted to to work with him and and the community you know of all the people around him and and all the other bands you know yeah, very interested yeah. in putting out the homies records basically you know all the friends
0: it's been I think watching Namdi, especially since, you know, since this label started has been like one of the greatest joys I think of, of, of watching music happen over the past like couple of years is the, the ascent that, 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 that guy is on right now. It's, it's so heartwarming to see. And, um, (laughs) yeah, it's been incredible. I've got like such a fondness for that person. Um, Sorry. I get uh whenever I, this is just what happens now when you get old, right? You 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 talk about any of your friends and you I don't know if, how old how old are you? I'll be 32 this year. Yeah, I'm turning I'm 31 now. It's I I don't know what's going on. It's just like yeah. any time I think about somebody that I like, I can't fucking talk anymore.
1: It 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 there could there's not. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't the good things that are happening to that guy couldn't be happening to. It was just a better person. And that's yeah. what I think you're getting at. Anyone who knows him or is pals with him just, yeah, absolutely understands it. Super genuine, works really hard. His music is awesome. You know, he lifts up everyone around him all the time, helps people, you know, and collaborates with people. And it's very, very cool to be part of that. Yeah. For sure. And seeing all the good things happen to him is, is awesome.
0: But what I like about, about, the label a lot too is that it it hints it hits um uh what you were saying about like the music community here and I I think that super is like the collection of people who are on that label like it's not it's not one circle of musicians in Chicago it's it's a lot of different ones that kind of like all just sort of come in and like veer towards the same center point like everybody on that label makes a lot of sense. But they're not all playing the same things. They're not all like going to the same shows. Yeah, has it just worked out that way? It's
1: yeah. It's funny. It's so, it's so unintentional. I think, um, you know, we get we get hit up a lot uh, more recently now. You know, with bands pitching us on records and wanting to work with us and stuff. And there's so much good stuff out there. I wish we could work with you know a lot more people. But the the records that we do put out. They're all friends of you know myself or Namdi or someone or bands that we're in or that we're close to. It's all homies or very close homies of homies, and you know who approach us and they're like, "Hey, we're thinking about you know putting this record out." It's like not for you or something. It's like, yeah. "Oh, of, co- of course we're gonna put out your right. record, Lee. right?" And totally. It, all of the records that we have put out, even though like you're saying, it's sort of different circles. I feel like everyone these those were all of the these are all of the people whose albums we wanted to put out at the time that we started the label you right know what i mean yeah um there's not a record that we've put out uh, f- for people that we don't know sort of pretty well or that we haven't played with personally or haven't championed their music for a while you yeah know? so i that's part of the reason it's just multi genres because it's about sort of supporting those people but yeah it's it's been i mean <laughs> we've we've committed to like a few records that we've put out before we ever even heard it, you know, Uh it's like, yeah, of course, we're going to put your record out, you know, (laughs) which I don't know, you know, um, that has not yet blown up in our face, uh, but I think just practically moving forward now, you know, it's like, all right, yeah, cool. Let's, you know, send us the record first and and everything will be cool. But yeah, it's, it's really just been friends. I mean, honestly, you know, and I don't know what I like to think that defining quality of the label, because it is multi-genre sort of like, I call it art pop, even though it's super broad, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, you put the word art in front of it, you know, and then it
0: gives it, it that it, leeway interesting. It opens to be interesting. up, yeah, 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 it opens it up to, you know, whatever type of expression um, people are, are doing. How is it, you know, now that you're, you know fully practicing and that's like settled down and then you have this, do they, do they help balance each other out or is it kind of, uh, does it ever become difficult to, you know, have to have in the back of your mind that, you know, you got to put this, this tape out next month and you've also got to, you know, take down fucking MetLife (laughs) on the same week.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's working, uh, two jobs basically. Um, it's, it's, you know, forty hours a week at, at the firm and then it's, you know, at least forty hours a week too, doing music. So it's work all day till six and then come home and write emails, place orders, make phone calls or practice or do, do this or the other thing. It's uh-huh. definitely a ton of work. Um Is it yeah. good? it's it's productive. Uh-huh. It's definitely productive. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, I, I need to make t- sure to you know get some downtime and you know especially you know with f- my fiance is spending time with her and stuff which which we've been pretty good uh, at doing but it's definitely a lot i would like in the future and i don't know what's going to happen you know it, either i'm just going to keep doing these these two things totally separately or um you know if they could start to fuse in some way that that would be cool meaning if um y- you know perhaps perhaps my experience in doing all of this stuff. Because even for Super, I drafted our operating agreement. I write all of our licensing agreement. I've negotiated right. contracts with distribution companies and other record labels and stuff like that. I've sort of you know seen a lot of different things about management and PR and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Perhaps I will be able to sort of swing that into maybe some kind of artist services, yeah. legal practice that I could bring into the firm, or maybe not. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll just be... You know, yeah, trying, trying mean, cases in Put County funny, and funny guy down the hall. Yeah. that it's got a like weird music thing. We yeah. don't really ask him about it, but Your Honor, <laughs> can we take a small break? I need to make sure I place an order for this noise tape. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Well, I mean, it's uh, it's good that you're good that you're keeping busy. It's really nice having you over. Thanks yeah. for coming by.
1: Thank you absolutely for having me. This has been great. All
0: right. Are you hungry? Are you hungry? Oh my god. I love myself. All right, hey, I think you could pick up the wind created by my fist pumping when he mentioned Camu. I think it picked up in the recording. Glenn, such a thinker, all of that wide lens, multi-dimensional thinking that goes into his creative process, along with the amount of balancing that goes into the task-oriented processes of running a label. That was a super fruitful conversation, one that I had to very consciously keep myself grounded in. I think I could have gone on that philosophy bent for a couple days, but I'm sure he and I can pick that up next time we see each other. For now, I just wanna express complete gratitude to Glenn for taking the time to come over and taking the time to do something that can really test one's patience and commitment. Very validating to speak with someone who stays in forward motion the way he does. Check out super online, superrecords.com superrecords.bandcamp.com. If you're listening to this, you certainly know the difficulties for small labels in the streaming age. Head over there. Buy a tape. Buy a record. The new not for you is there. New wrong numbers. Mother Evergreen. The freaking powerhouse. Coaster. Great Deceivers. Options. Three of the most overlooked bands of our time. And that man without a head record. Also available on the Super Bandcamp or... At manwithoutahead.bandcamp.com Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. I've been saying iTunes for a year since it's been Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. Tell a friend about the show. You can like the page on Facebook. Uh, you can send me a message on there. Email is betteryetpodcast at gmail.com. Twitter is at betteryetpod. The website is betteryetpod.com merchandise is available at betteryetpod.com slash merch the show is also available on bandcamp .bandcamp betteryetpodcast.bandcamp.com and thank you so much thank you Glenn thank you Chloe And, and and thank you all of you who keep coming back making this thing worth doing every week come back next week Thanks, brothers.